Welcome to the 130th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Richard Ellis Preston, author of Romulus Buckle and the City of the Founders, book one of the Chronicles of the Pneumatic Zeppelin. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Richard Ellis Preston, Jr., author of the new novel, Romulus Buckle and the City of the Founders. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. Great. Well, can I have you read the first page or two of your new novel, Romulus Buckle and the City of the Founders? Absolutely. Uh, here we go. Chapter one, The Magnificent Romulus Buckle. Romulus Buckle was an airman, a Zeppelin pilot to be exact, or to be less exact in the local slang, a gas bag gremlin, a dirigible driver, a balloon goose, an air dog, or whatever moniker any lazy brat might cook up in his gin-stewed cerebellum. Captain Buckle, as most of his crew called him, was a tree-tall fellow, six feet and a couple of caterpillar lengths more if he was an inch, his, chicks, his cheeks and chin scruffed with weather, whiskers the color of sand dunes, in ample quantities for a man of the ripe old age of 18. He was shot bolt through with Aviator Dash, that legendary heart-stirring Dash. He laughed heartily and often, and his eyes, deep and glacier water blue, made women swoon, all except for the beautiful Martian named Max, of course, who found him far too droll. One might think Bunkle was young to be in command of a sky vessel as dauntingly impressive as the pneumatic Zeppelin, and he was. But he led a crew whose average age did not exceed 20 years by much, except for Max, of course. Nobody knew how old Max was, and she was never in the mood for telling. But then there was no getting old around the snow world, the old California in those days. Not in the time of the noxious mustard, also referred to as stinkum, if you were using gutter talk, and the carbuncle plague, with the nasty BCs alerkin blood freezer storms, and the high percentage risk of one's black bang musket exploding in one's face every time one pulled the trigger. Politically, everything was complicated by the little wars, the skirmishes, with each clan almost always at odds with every other, their fears stoked by the shady trader guilds, which played them all against each other for a half penny's profit. Toss in the roaming wolf packs of pirates and privateers to stir up the pot, and the entire situation became quite aggravated. But ah, the sky. The sky was the place to be as far as Buckle was concerned. It was no matter to him that Zeppelineers were sitting ducks in their fragile steam clunkers that flew far too low, were notoriously difficult to bail out of, and were frighteningly susceptible to the catastrophic pop. Steam engines, with their red-hot furnaces and boilers, did not really belong up in the sky inside giant fabric bags of flammable hydrogen, constantly battered and rattled around and shot at. Not really. Zeppelin pilots had a life expectancy of six months in a skirmish zone, one year in peacetime. But the second statistic was meaningless because all of the snow world was a skirmish zone, at least had been, at least since the day of the storming, and nobody knew where that statistic had come from anyway. So there's a, there's a little passage from the beginning of the book. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Romulus Buckle in the City of the Founders yet, how would you describe your new novel? Uh, it's a, I think it lands squarely in the steampunk subgenre, which is uh, a subgenre of science fiction 
And um, if uh, I guess I should just describe steampunk a little bit because people have quite often seen it, but they don't exactly know that that, that particular subgenre has its own specific name. Uh, and steampunk as a as a subgenre tends to focus on the Victorian era of, of the British Empire and, and also focuses on uh, steam power being the primary mode of power. Uh, so you quite often get these stories which uh, involve those lots of big, uh, beautiful steam-powered machines that come from the age when uh, industrialization had just appeared. And so people were making machinery, but they were also making it to look beautiful. And, and then you'll also get a lot of pith helmets and zeppelins and all kinds of automatons that are running on steam power. Um, and so set in that kind of world, my book is, my agent first pitched it as a steampunk Pirates of the Caribbean. And I think that's, that's fairly accurate in terms of tone. It's about a, a war crew, a war Zeppelin crew, their captain his, and his bridge officers, essentially, kind of a Star Trek kind of model. <laughs> uh, and they're basically in this very perilous post-apocalyptic world where uh, all kinds of awful things are happening. There's wars happening. There's uh, alien beasties left over from an invasion. So there's, it's just a very big, fun ride. I tried to write something in the tradition of sort of an Indiana Jones or a Robin Hood, uh, the old one with Errol Flynn kind of thing, which is a lot of fun, a lot of action, but also characters that you care about. Great. And, and what attracted you to write a steampunk novel? Uh, I think in the beginning, I, I didn't know what steampunk was. Uh, I've, I've read a lot of science fiction in my life, um, but I'm sort of more of the old school where I read a lot of Bradbury and Heinlein and Asimov, Wells and Verne. And I knew that I had wanted to, uh, to do a novel about uh, a ship's crew. And I also wanted to write a novel that had zebra-striped aliens in it. <laughs> and I also wanted to write a novel that had strong female characters. And so when I was looking for an environment to put that in, uh, I found that a World War II submarine was, didn't work. Uh, an 18th century warship didn't quite work. Uh, a spaceship, for some reason or other, didn't quite work. And then a friend of mine uh, handed me sort of what's considered one of the classic steampunk books, which is uh, uh, Jerry Priest's uh, Bone Shaker. And when I looked at it, I realized, oh, this is its own thing. There's this thing with the Zeppelins and the steam power is actually its own subgenre. And it's very wide open. You can plug all kinds of things into it because it's sort of very nebulous in its, in its parameters anyway. So I thought, here we go. If I, you know, I can have a crew, I can have it on this Zeppelin, which is very much like an 18th century warship. And I can have my aliens because it's post-apocalyptic. Uh, and very much edged on the fantasy side. So that's really how I found steampunk. It was really because other genres, they were just failing me in one particular place or the other. And also, just to add, uh, you know, if you're trying to have strong female characters, especially if they're in command positions, that's obviously very difficult to build if you're looking at a lot of history, um, unless you get a very strange situation like maybe having female pirate captains on a pirate ship. Right. Uh, it's it's not an easy thing to do if you're trying to stick close to the history in a lot of those situations, especially a World War II submarine. There weren't any women on them. 
uh, and that kind of thing. So steampunk was just there. There you go. Off, we're off to the races. You can build it any way you want. Gotcha. And and I know from your biography that I know that you worked for many years as a screenwriter in Hollywood. Um, how did your How did you get into um, Hollywood and and writing screenplays? What was that process like? Um, I had been uh, I had worked in the news in Canada. I was a news cameraman. I was sort of trained for that and realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I thought, well, I'll, I, I was born in Los Angeles, so I thought, well, I'll come back down to Los Angeles and I'll see if I can do screenwriting and then I'll try and do novel writing on the side if, if I'm successful in any way, shape, or form that way. And so I came down here and started working in a bookstore on Ventura Boulevard in the Valley and started trying to find an agent, started trying to you know do the typical screenwriter thing with the screenplay or two that I had already written. And my first sort of knock on the door was a friend of mine at the bookstore was a script reader at Universal Studios. And she got me in with a company there, a company called Storyline Productions, which was Craig Zodden and Neil Marin, who were the two producers of Footloose. And they had a first look deal at Universal. So I spent over a year there reading generally very bad screenplays <laughs> in their development department. Uh, and I eventually quit because I just was worried as, because I was reading so much dreck. And of course, obviously the good stuff that comes from the established screenwriters didn't go to the readers. It went to the producers and the development executives. They didn't have to screen those. So I was worried, look, I should be reading Hemingway and Faulkner and, 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 uh, you know, all, all those other famous people because I'm, I'm worried that all this terrible stuff is I'm absorbing it somehow. Um, <laughs> But one of the things that really did uh, the bo- the big bonus in that connection was that uh, my development executive said, hey, if any of you guys, and there were about 10 readers uh, in this company, um, it said, if any of you guys write a screenplay and give it to me, and I think it's something that, that's good enough, I'll send it out to all the agents whom I know are young and looking for clients. So I wrote a screenplay called Sheer Ice, which was basically Die Hard in the Snow. Everything was Die Hard somewhere then at that point. And uh, he liked it. He sent it out to a number of agents in one bit, uh, Susan Sussman at uh, Premier Artists. And so I went over and signed with her. And did, actually with that, I, did a, I ended up going to a lot of studios to pitch screenplay as I went to, uh, met with a lot of people. Nobody ever bit on those, though. And then I sort of had a door open for B-movies uh, made for cable films by a, a friend of mine who was in a screenwriting class I took. And uh, I ended up working for that company for about a decade in what you could probably consider, that company was called PM Entertainment. They were very well known for big action B-films uh, and some family stuff and some sci-fi. And I wrote probably about 16 features for them in various genres, family sci-fi or action and uh, it was, I kind of liken it to the old days in the 1940s and the old Hollywood, old Hollywood film mills, which where they would turn out just movie after movie after movie, none of which very few of them we ever see now because they weren't of a very high grade, but everybody was working all of the time and they would just move from film to film. Casablanca came out of that assembly line, which was sort of one of those situations where just everything worked despite the schedule and the odds and everything else. But uh, so I really had a lot of fun because for a long time I would often be 
in development on a screenplay, one would be in production, and then I could go and watch them doing post on another one. Uh, and I learned a lot from that situation. And those things would air on HBO and Cinemax and USA and TNT. Um, but that company sort of ended up getting a little bit overrun when cable started making their own stuff. Right. And, and at that point, I think I was pretty done with it. I thought, I'm going to go write novels now. I'll, I'll go back into poverty and write novels now. <laughs> so that, that was my decision uh, at that point. But that was how I got into screenwriting. I never cracked the A-list, although I do a fair bit of kids' TV uh, for Fox Kids and Animal Planet. Uh, but I never, uh, never ever got a screenplay sold to a big studio. Never, never got that done. Right. And, and along the way, had you written earlier novels? I'd written two, both of which I don't think I'll ever show to anybody uh, <laughs> ever. Uh, one was a fantasy novel, uh, and and the other one was uh, really just the first draft of a World War II submarine story that completely I completely lost control of. <laughs> uh, so I'll never show. They're they're in my they're in my you know they're in my closet in a box and. Uh, uh, probably for posterity's sake, I should burn them so no child of mine ever opens that up and reads it. <laughs> but, uh, they were good learning experiences, especially in terms of structure and and being trying to maintain a story for as long as a novel requires you to maintain a story. Sure, sure. And and while you were working doing the screenwriting, as you as you said earlier, and 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 doing all the the you know watching post production, et cetera, did you know all along that you wanted to eventually write novels if you could? Yes, I I think you know in retrospect you never want to look back and say, well, I made this mistake and I regret it. I I you know everybody tries I think not to regret making certain mistakes. Sure. And I think. I really enjoyed my experience screenwriting, even on the B movie level where I was. And uh, but I think in my head, I always thought that I would be a novelist. I always thought that that was what I was best suited for. And I had this idea that well, screenwriters tend to make some money, even if you're sort of a mid list to low list. They can end, if you work enough, you can make enough money to live on. Right. And I always had this idea that that might be an easier nut to crack than actually getting a book published. So it, I did crack that nut to a degree, but I think I always kind of felt like that my ultimate shift would be to novels. And I think I probably should have made that move sooner than I did. But uh, on the other hand, it may have been that was the only time I was ready to do it. Sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, along the way, I pretty much knew I wanted, I wanted to write books. Right. So, so um, you, you kind of wound down the screenwriting and, and started working on novels. What was the path to publication like for Romulus Buckle? Did you already have a literary agent? Did your film agent represent you to New York publishers? What was that whole process like? Oh, wow. Well, torturous path. I guess they're all torturous. Each one's torturous. <laughs> um, my, my screenplay agent, actually, after, after my contract was up with her, she didn't renew it. And at that point, I think she was a little miffed by the fact that I had shifted in very hard into B films where she wasn't representing me and that, you know, I wasn't probably, I bet she probably felt and rightly so that I wasn't putting as much energy as I could into trying to write A-list a scripts. Right. We had a very, we were a very nice mutual understanding that that probably wasn't going to work anymore. And so I really went agentless the whole time uh, for all those years 
through the B movies, although I tried a number of times to get another one. Um, although probably not as hard as I probably should have tried. But um, when that sort of ended and I went to novel writing, uh, I decided I was going to write this huge trilogy based in Russia in the Second World War. And boy, did I bite off a big piece of something to chew on. <laughs> and I researched it for a long time. And I went to Russia and interviewed people and visited battlefields. And uh, that trilogy was just so big. I'm still working on it. It's The first book is almost done. But anyway, at a certain point, I got realized that I was bogging down with it that I had had it for so long, for five or six years, working on it around my, my real day job, that uh, I thought I need to take a break and I want to write, I'm gonna write something else in six months that I really want to write as well, and then come back to it fresh. So that's how I decided I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna write this, this steampunk book the steampunk Indiana Jones book in about three months, which I did it took me about three months to edit it. And then I was ready to take it out. And I thought, well, this is good because now I have something that I love that I can pedal while I'm still working on this, this Russian one. And so I have a friend, her name is Julie Kenner. She's a very popular, she started out in romance novels, then kind of went over to YA uh, urban fantasy kind of uh, vampire killer and now she has a very popular series out now, which is sort of in the same vein as, as Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, that's the name of the series. So she told me, she said, hey, let me, before you start firing scattershot into the, into the heavens for agents, let me open a few doors for you with some agents I know or work with who I think might be interested in steampunk. And I said, wow, sure, okay, thank you. <laughs> that's uh, a nice offer. It was a wonderful offer. She's been a friend of mine since I moved to Los Angeles, which was, I met her in about 1991. And she was a lawyer then. And so I have been, I have witnessed her uh, book career uh, rise and rise and rise uh, since then. And she finally quit lawyering and went out to become a full-time author quite a few years ago. And so we're very good friends. And so she did a wonderful thing. She opened doors to three agencies that she'd either worked with before or knew the people very well. And two of them refused, but the third one, uh, which was actually the biggest one, took it. And how that worked was Julie gave the book to her agent, Kim Whalen, who's at Trident Media Group. Mm -hmm. And Kim, did, she, Kim said, well, I don't do steampunk, but uh, there's a brand new agent who loves science fiction who's looking for clients. So, of course, I sort of stumbled, that sort of stumbled into the right situation, you know, how those things have to happen. Yep. And so she gave the book to a woman, a very uh, lovely young woman named Adrienne Lombardo, who I just saw at Comic-Con San Diego this weekend. And she had been the assistant to the company president for quite a few years. Had just finished her master's degree in publishing at NYU and now was coming in. They were folding her in as her own agent. She could take on her own clients. And so uh, my book got to her and she called me up about a week later. She was halfway through it and she said, I love this. I want to represent it. I know I'm brand new, but I have a lot of people here who are you know, going to open doors for me. And she didn't have to sell herself to me. <laughs> I, was, I was fine with it. And she ended up being great. And again, it's one of those situations where 
the lightning just sort of struck. Number one, you know, Adrian kind of, she got it in October, and I think I was signed in November. Um, I did a little bit more polishing over Christmas. Uh, she sent the book out uh, at the new year to her top six or seven choices. And I think in March I was signed with 47 North, which was one of her first choices. They, they made an offer for two books uh, in, I think it was March, uh, and we signed up with them. And so that was, it went, that whole process went awfully quickly. Uh, as far as, as as a book goes, but it just sort of seemed like that was one of those situations where all the dominoes were lined up for that particular project. Right. Wow, that's that's an amazing story. So, um, uh, what's your what's your writing process like? Are you an organic writer, or do you uh, know the plot before you sit down and start writing the book? Um, I like to describe myself as a as a plotter and a pantser. Plotter first and pantser second. And that seems counterintuitive, but um, I guess the way that I could describe it is I outline everything before I start. Uh, there might be a scene or two that pops up to me and I'll write it, but generally speaking, I'll build, I'll get my little, my um, uh, three by five cards. I have gigantic bulletin boards up all over my office and I will write down all the scenes that I believe I want I will rearrange them and rework them, rewrite them, add new ones, cut ones out, whatever I have to do until I have a wall where I have the first scene all the way, pretty much. There'll be gaps, but until I the ending. And I have to know what the ending is uh, in order to work my way towards it. Uh, once I start writing, they have that old saying, I can't remember who said it, but no plan survives contact with the enemy. <laughs> yeah. And that pretty much works for my writing, which is once I get started, everything start go everything the characters once they start talking and once the story starts rolling, everything starts going in different directions. But that's fine because I feel like I'm pantsing it a bit there because I just let it go where it wants to go and see how what happens. But I know uh, with it all laid out like that, I know how my changes affect the whole story. And where things are going to alter and adjust. And I do a lot of removing and rearranging and replacing of those cards. But I feel like I have a nice safety net because I don't end up doing things that I don't know how they're going to end up. And I believe that if you're doing, if you're dealing with a relationship or you're dealing with certain uh, all kinds of story elements, I think I need to know at least in a general respect how they're going to end. And um, it doesn't matter if, if it's not what I expected. And also, just to add to that, it was different. I had to build these story arcs or this plot out the entire series of books because this is the first book in a series. And I discovered that there were a number of things. I, I needed to know who faced off with who at the end and who, what everyone's relationship was and how it resolved. But there are also other storylines that I've intentionally left unresolved in my head because I don't want to know how they resolve. Uh, because if I do, I think I would unconsciously start writing towards those. And in, in, in those respects, I don't want to really say what they are. Right. But in those particular storylines, I don't want to give away what's going to happen. And the only thing, way I think I can know or not do that is to not know myself. And, uh, but those are elements that I, those are pieces that I can let 
uh, hang and not and and not feel like I'm in trouble because of it, if that makes any sense at all. Sure, sure. So, I think so. Oh, go sorry. Ahead. Go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying. I think anybody who walked in my office would say, "Oh boy, a plotter." compulsive plotter but i really think that uh if you sort of lift the lid on it it's it's actually quite a messy situation and and i think i have the um the ability to not uh, be locked into those plot you know into all those cards uh you know they that i can just mess them and rearrange them as i go and is that is that a uh, process that you started using with your screenplays, the three by five cards for for each scene? Yes, absolutely. Um, screenplays require really such a strict structure, mm-hmm. and and you've probably seen. I don't know if you've written any screenplays or know a lot of people who have, but there's so many books on that three act structure that, generally speaking, every screenplay has to conform to these plot points at certain areas and, and, and midpoint and all kinds of structural things, which seem to apply so very well to, to movies. And I think I did in the beginning very much learn and be comfortable with the cards. And, but I find them to just be, you know, a huge help because I can sit back and I can look at the skeleton of my whole story whenever I want to. It's all in one. It's like looking at the skeleton of a dinosaur. You can't really see the creature yet, but you know what its shape and form are. And I, I think that that's, I think that's a huge positive for me in my process. Uh, you know. Sure. Sure. So, so what advice would you have for someone who is an aspiring writer and would like to get their own novels or short stories published or screenplays? Sure. Um, screenplays, uh, I think screenplays and novels, uh, you know, everyone tells me that it's harder to get a novel published than a screenplay. And I don't know if that's true, especially now that the, the, if you're talking about A's. The A-list because the studios seem to be hedging their bets so much on fewer movies with bigger budgets. Um, but I think that if you're a screenwriter and you want to do features or episodic, my advice would be uh, you've got to write the best possible spec script you can. You have to write something uh, that that people will will notice. And then the other thing would be I think that the the made for the cable networks. Uh, are generating so much of their own in terms of programming that that seems like that's sort of the new fresh place for new writers to try to go. In terms of an agent, uh, I I think that you can tell from my experience um, that when I got my, my screenwriting agent, Susan Sussman, that agency had just opened. And then when I got my literary agent, that was a brand new agent, a very young agent at... Uh, a big agency and so you've got to do and uh, both of them both of them had doors opened by somebody else that I knew those were not cold you know that was not me submitting right uh, you know through the through the regular channels those were through contacts and so I guess if I could reverse and look backward I would say work very hard on your contact <laughs> very very hard <clears throat> Massive stuff. Uh, I have. I mean, I saw it personally when I was a script reader at Universal. The tide is overwhelming of what's coming through the door at these normal human beings who are the executives and producers and agents. And so you have to, in many, many ways, you have to find 
that that kink that sort of that chink in the armor that that little spot that opening if that's a friend of someone or something along or win a contest you know something like that but something that gets you on their desk uh with some sort of reason to read it because uh it's just it's just the volume of what's coming at them it's very hard to just submit and hope that they notice it it's very 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 hard so i think you have to start thinking creatively and start trying to say who do i know who knows who and when i first came out to los angeles once people knew that i was coming out here and once people knew that i was wanting to do what i wanted to do friends of my parents who went to school with a someone who was the producer of a film let my parents know uh there were not many but a handful of doors open for me just simply through the six degrees of separation that people have sure around me around you and i would say look hard for those things make sure that your friends and your family maybe just chat you up a bit to their friends and family and you might be surprised who knows who and uh that would be my advice in terms of the book i guess the the book writing that would be similar i think it's very difficult to get in through the slush pile and i believe you me i have walked a thousand miles and sent a thousand query letters and mailed off a thousand scripts and screenplays through that process. And um, as you can tell from my story, the, the, the two agents that I got, the screenwriting agent, literary agent, did not come through that process. Right. And they came through trying to sort of invest myself into uh, as a reader and then also through a person who just been a friend of mine for a very long time. Sure, uh, sure. So that would be my advice would be work on the tangents, work on the outside angles where you can get some kind of person working for you inside because that pipe, I mean, I don't know what it was like in let's say 1950, but boy, the pipe into the agents and the producers now is just full. It is just full. That's great advice. So what what books or authors have you read in the last year or two that, that made an impression on you and that you would mention or recommend? Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> first, well, well first of all, I, uh, when I got signed on to 47 North, they brought on Jeff Vandermeer who as my development ed- editor. And Jeff Vandermeer is a very successful, very well-respected science fiction writer. And so... Uh, I immediately, I'd, I'd heard of him, but I had never read any of his books. And so I immediately turned and read a couple of his books, which I, one of them is City of Saints and Mad Men, which if you're sort of interested in dark, fantastic science fiction, uh, is just a, a, a fabulous novel. And he also has a book called Book Life, which I would highly recommend to anybody who's considering making uh, a lifetime out of trying to be or being an author. Uh, it's all about the public and private book life, about how you organize your time, uh, both in terms of your own public relations and in terms of your writing. And I think it's a great book uh, for someone who wants to be a writer. Um, so after, now that I'm done fanboying about Jeff, uh, <laughs> which, believe you me, is, is well-deserved by him, and he's a very nice man and a fantastic development editor, um, I would think I would say that probably the last few books that I've written that really made an impression on me uh, was the um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward uh, Robert Ford by I believe it's Tom Hansen 
uh, I thought was a fantastic book and also actually a great movie, which I saw afterwards. Uh, that was probably the last book I read that really uh, impressed me. And then, of course, the, uh, the Vandermeer one. I think that's probably the last two. I, I went back and reread uh, The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje, which I read probably just about every year uh, because that's one of my favorite books. And that was probably actually the very last thing I read. Great. Um, so anyway, yeah, those three, I would, I would highly recommend any of those three. Sure. Sure. So, so what are you working on next? Are you, are you working on another Romulus buckle book? Or are you working on the, the Russian trilogy that you mentioned earlier? Um, I'm in a little bit of a pause now. 47 North, uh, purchased uh, two books in the Romulus buckle series and they're both finished. So book one, Romulus Buckle and the City of the Founders, came out on July 2nd. So it's closing in on a month of release. And then uh, Romulus Buckle and the Engines of War, which is the second book, comes out on November 19th of this year. Uh, and then essentially 47 North is waiting to see how everything plays out uh, before negotiating or not uh, for further books in the series. So right now I am in a little bit of a pause. And yes, I am finally polishing up the first book of the Russian trilogy so that I'm hoping that I'll have time to get that to my agent and hopefully get that running in terms of, of um, having it uh, submitted to publishers uh, before there's any, any pressure coming down. Uh, well, hopefully there's pressure coming down for the, for more of the Romulus buckle books. Sure. Sure. Uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just saying that, uh, it's so right now I'm in a bit of a limbo uh, in terms of of not knowing what, exactly whether I'm going to write a third book or not in this series. Right, right. Well, well, that's all the questions that I had. Did you have anything uh, that we didn't discuss that you wanted to mention? Um, no, I don't think so. I think I think we covered it pretty well. Uh, um, the only thing I would add, maybe just as a, a very recent experience, is that I did go down to Comic Con San Diego this last weekend to uh, spend four days puttering around seeing if I, what I could do in terms of increasing my exposure as an author. And 47 North doesn't have any presence at Comic-Con San Diego this year. They will at Comic-Con New York, but not at San Diego. So I was going in there, an unknown author with a, brand new, a, a freshly published book that no one had ever heard of, but I thought what I would do is is putter around and see what I could do. I did. I wasn't on. I didn't have a booth, and I wasn't obviously wasn't on any panel. Uh, and I think that it was actually fairly productive. I actually walked around and handed copies of my book to people in steampunk costumes. <laughs> which, of course, that's probably not much return on the effort, but uh, it's just uh, exposure. But I did go to all of the booths, and steampunk is starting to get bigger on uh, in terms of people's awareness of it. And I did go to a number of booths, the League of Steam, uh, the Gaslight uh, organization in San Diego. And uh, they're all very pro for promoting steampunk. So it looks like I'll be able to do some things with them. And that's a little bit bigger platform, of course, obviously, than me myself. And once again, that's the, the personal contact of going down there and meeting these people. And, and most of them are, are very, very nice. So that would be the only thing that I would add, that if you are a writer... Uh, and this is one thing that my friend Julie, who's a very successful author, has has also urged me to do, is that there's a lot of rewards that come from going to conventions or going to writers' 
organizations that you join and um, building up your contact network within those uh, organizations, even with people who aren't, you don't think are in a position to help you career-wise. And that's, that's being cynical. Of course, you, you make friends with everyone who's friendly with you. Sure, but, sure. Uh, a lot of those people, again, end up having much bigger webs and networks behind them, and there's a lot of people who love to pay forward with people they like. Uh, they'll open doors for you that you normally wouldn't have been able to open. So I guess my only other added piece of advice would be, uh, I know a lot of writers just live in, you know, they go into their hermit den and they don't ever come out, and that's what some people do, and that's fine. But if you are looking to increase your opportunities, I think it has to be through that human communication is even now in the age of the internet when you can do all that contact uh, electronically digitally uh, I think that if you have local organizations you should make an effort to go and, and, and be a part of them that's great advice that's great advice um, because I, I, I you know my day job I work in public relations and I think yes I mean I think that 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 human you know face-to-face -face contact uh can really augment whatever you're doing online digitally so that's good advice well well again we've been speaking with richard ellis preston jr author of romulus buckle in the city of the founders the book is available in bookstores now so go buy a copy richard thanks for doing this interview hey jeff it was a great experience and an honor thank you very much for having me on great You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.